Well, shalom. I think we can do a little better than that, huh? Let's try that again. Shalom. Oh, beautiful. Well, greetings in the glorious name above all names, in the name of the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. My name is Susan Mendelson. I am here on behalf of the Ministry of Jews for Jesus, and thank you so much, Pastor Mike, for inviting us to come. It's a privilege to be with you all this morning. Um, I've been serving just a little bit, uh, uh, just about... Uh, myself as a believer, Jewish believer, and um, about my service with Jews for Jesus. I'm going to, is that better? Okay, great. So um, uh, I've been a believer in Jesus about 26 years. This past July was my 26th birthday in the Lord. And I had a radical encounter. You know, people usually come one of two ways, either kind of the Berean road, you know, the road of study, and then the spirit illumines the truth, right? Or the road of Damascus, so to speak, a la Paul, right? And you get zapped. And so I did have kind of a Damascus road experience. Uh, I was a nice Jewish girl from Long Island living in Dallas, Texas. Yeehaw. (laughs) Hoping to have a career in country music. You do not need to elbow the person next to you. There's nothing wrong with the microphone. You heard me correctly. Yes. You can't make this stuff up, folks. So anyway, that is the truth. I had a uh, horrible uh, bout of performance anxiety, and I almost started to have another one uh, simultaneous to this over many years of living there. Many, many people tried to share their faith with me. Uh, But I knew two things. I'm Jewish. I don't believe in Jesus. End of conversation. However, those seeds that people planted were powerful seeds, and in God's perfect timing, I did come to a saving faith. I was about to enter into a big country music competition a couple days before that, and before that, a few weeks before that, I had had such an anxiety attack like I, an anxiety attack like I had never experienced in my life, and it was such a relief to get through it. And then it was that few weeks later getting ready to be entered into this country music competition a couple days before that, and I just began to feel the anxiety welling up in me again, and that was it. The steering wheel of my van, I cried out to God, and I said, "Uh, dear God, I cannot go into another performance like this again. I said, I need a transformation now, and then off my lips, really my own surprise, came the words, please let the spirit of Christ fill my heart, and at that second, I was drenched in the most incredible peace. I never thought I'd feel fear again. For three days, I had an encounter with the Lord, and on the third day that night was the competition. All day long, there was a battle going on. Part of the time, I felt that peace of God, the presence of God that had come over me. Other part of the time, anxiety, back, full-blown. So it was back and forth, back and forth, anxiety, peace, anxiety, peace. I was just exhausted from the whole thing. Finally, I'm standing in the bathroom. This is proof God is everywhere. Standing in the bathroom, looking up, and I just said, dear God, please uh, kill off this other thing. I can't stand it. And I mean in a split second, like I know that you're sitting there and I'm standing here. I knew that I knew that I knew that I was standing in the direct presence of the one true living God. And at that second, you know what he showed me? My disloyalty. 
that I would do anything, I would say anything, and I would promise anything to get what I needed. And the second I didn't think I needed it anymore, I would just forget where it came from. Right after that, there were no visions, no voices. It was just this huge opportunity to take a vow to be true to Christ. And as you can imagine, that was the best vow I have ever taken. My life began to change. Everything began to change. Now I knew three things. One, I'm Jewish. Two, I believe in Jesus. And three, everybody else needs to believe in him also. So, uh, yeah, God made me an evangelist just from the beginning. And within two years of my salvation, I was actually part of Jews for Jesus as part of their traveling music team. Um, funny how the, uh, the things that we hold on to, the things that we love and cherish, that music that was so important to me, actually from the time I was about three, uh, that music that meant everything to me, that I coveted, was a ministry that God had for me. And so I had the privilege. Once I went on staff with Jews for Jesus in 1992, I served with them about a year and a half, uh, touring the country as part of a music group, singing in churches about six to eight times a week. Came off the road. The next few years, I was affiliated with Jews for Jesus, but um, and I still did music with them, but I was not on staff. I actually worked for Yellow Book. Anybody remember Yellow Book? Yeah, I used to work on the North Fork Directory, but that was the three years in between. And am I pointing the right way? Wait, which is north? <laughs> anyway, you know where it is. Right? Okay, perfect. So, and then I went back on staff. God was calling me to a solo music career. Well, given my history with the fear, you can imagine that was a big challenge, but it was my heart's desire, and boy, did he bring the peace. So I went out, I went back on staff in 97 uh, to do a solo tour, traveling around the country, doing six to eight programs a week in churches uh, for about a year and a half, and I have never left the staff of Jews for Jesus since. And I've done lots of traveling around around the globe, singing and presenting the ministry, sharing with a lot of Jewish people as I go the truth of who Jesus is. And in 19... Um, Let's see, 1999, I took the missionary training. Uh, fast forward some years, um, continuing on staff in, in different ways, uh, sometimes as a missionary, sometimes as a traveling musician. In 2011, I actually made an appeal to make uh, Long Island um, an official work of the work of Jews for Jesus. And that appeal was accepted, and so I've been serving as a missionary here on Long Island since 2011. And uh, friends, there are 316,000 Jewish people here on Long Island and me. This is job security. I can never die. No, but, uh, well, fortunately my soul will never die, but uh, I will go on at some point, and I'm sure the Lord will, if he tarries, will continue the work here on Long Island. But I'll tell you more about uh, my work a little bit later on. But I've, um, I've been privileged to serve with Jews for Jesus now for quite some time. And uh, I grew up, you know, kind of a lox and bagels Jew, is what I like to say. You know, very secular. You probably know a few Jewish people like that, right? And then you bring up Jesus and you wonder why they get so, like, uptight about it. You know, they, and that's, it's in the core of our being 
in the core, the place where your parents teach you things, you know, and that's where they live until something catastrophic occurs and then it might change. Yeah, in the core of every Jewish being, at least in America, whether you're a lox and bagels Jew or whether you're wearing a big black hat and have payas and a black suit, you know two things for sure. One, you're Jewish. Two, you don't believe in Jesus. And that's why you get that reaction. Even if your work colleagues or family members who are Jewish, you know, they don't seem to have any religious affiliation whatsoever, but you bring up Jesus, boom. But you know who changes the core? The Holy Spirit. Because God's truth is God's truth. I know a guy who was an atheist in the morning. He was on his face before the Lord in the afternoon. I mean, this is the work of the Spirit of God. It's the work of the Spirit of God. Only God can do it, right? Even for, from those who seem the most uh, open to the idea. But you're thinking, okay, well, when are they going to believe? Okay, they've been pretty friendly about it. They're talking to me. They're nice. What are they waiting for? Every salvation, every single one, nobody can be argued into the kingdom, right? Have you ever met anybody who was argued into the kingdom? I have never met one. I don't even think we, I don't, I don't know, somebody correct me if I'm wrong later on. But uh, I don't even think we can find a place in the text where anybody was technically argued into the kingdom, you know? I mean, we see a lot of encounters and you know, the Bible being opened and people going, oh, I get it, you know, great, thanks, you know. But um, we just have to keep presenting, right? We have to keep making the Lord known in, in whatever way, um, in whatever way he opens the door. You know, sometimes the door doesn't open, but boy, we need to ask him. When we get up in the morning, we just get out of bed and Thank the Lord for the new day and the breath of life he gives us. And say these four words, use me today, Lord. Use me today, Lord. And let him put you on that path, right? That journey that has potentially eternal significance. Even if it's two seconds in the grocery line. And you're doing something and somebody's saying something else. And you're thinking, oh, I can drop Jesus' name here. You just name drop Jesus. Or sometimes just God, bringing God into the conversation is rattling enough for some people because we live in such a self-sufficient society. But just think of those two minutes in your 24 hours that you may have invested for eternity's sake. That's huge. So I want to encourage you in that way. It's been great to be with you this morning. Okay, Pastor. No, I'm kidding. I'm going <laughs> to... I am going to speak about Rosh Hashanah, I promise. Um, and we'll get on with that here in just a second. So I uh, just do want to encourage him that way. Just uh, get up in the morning and say, use me today, Lord, and be on your way and see what he does. And you may already be doing that, you know, just a friendly reminder if you are. So, um, you know, even as a Lox and Bagels Jew, we were very aware of Rosh Hashanah very aware of this time period uh, of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in particular. Sukkot never really came up, but Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And, you know, there's, um, there's a few things we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the biblical, um, the biblical picture of uh, Rosh Hashanah, and then we're going to look at some of the practices 
you know, that are, that are carried out throughout uh, Judaism. And, and then what some of that, you know, how we can interact with some of that, what some of that might mean for us, yeah? So um, what is it biblically? What is Rosh Hashanah biblically? Well, what I want to do actually is I want us to open the word of God right now and to take a look at the place where we find all of the appointed times, all of the appointed festivals. That's going to be Leviticus 23. And I just want to do like a little overview of the seven feasts, just real quick, so we can see Rosh Hashanah in context of the other feasts. And um, if we open to Leviticus 23, I think I'm... I'm so used to uh, using my electronic Bible these days. It's terrible, isn't it? I have all these places marked and the paper. Okay, Leviticus 23, uh, the word of the Lord. I'm going to just read verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. My appointed times are these. And then it launches into the seven feasts. Starting with the Sabbath, it explains that, which is a weekly appointed time for rest. And then we have two groups of three holidays, right? So the first group that's explained is the group of Passover and unleavened bread and the Feast of Weeks. And those for us, the way our seasons work out, that's all spring holidays, you're living on the other side of the equator, it's not spring. But for us, it is spring. And then um, the second group of the holidays are the fall, what we would call the fall feasts. And those begin in Leviticus 23, 23. Um, And just to say that, you know, on our current calendar, you may notice that the Jewish holidays... Uh, shift, you know, like all the time. Sometimes they're October. Sometimes they start the end of September. On the calendar that we use, they change. However, on the Jewish calendar, they are the same. They're the same dates every single year. And they occur in the seventh month, the month of Tishri. So the first of Tishri is Rosh Hashanah. And then 10 days later, so the 10th of Tishri is Yom Kippur. And then the 15th of Tishri is Sukkot. Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. So all the holidays, just a a little aside on this, you probably know it already, but all the Jewish holidays begin at sundown of the evening prior to the calendar date, And they end sundown of the last day of the holiday. So sundown to sundown. And we're going to zero in on Rosh Hashanah, as I mentioned. But I want to give you a little overview of these three fall feasts in a word picture with three R's. I'm going to sound like, I guess, a Baptist do that, don't they? Anyway, (laughs) I guess I'm going to sound like a Baptist here in a minute. I'm just a Jewish believer in Jesus, but this happens to work very well. So uh, 
Uh, the three R's are remember, repent, and rejoice. Remember, repent, and rejoice. Together, the three holidays over a roughly 23-day period, because uh, Sukkot's about a week, um, the three holidays together give us this picture of remembering, repenting, and rejoicing. And uh, for Rosh Hashanah, which is the remember piece, um, there are nine additional days leading up to Yom Kippur, which is the repent piece of, uh, of the package there, and then five days later leading up to uh, Sukkot, which is when you will see people start to build their uh, sukkahs. Now, depending on where you live, the closer you live to an Orthodox neighborhood, the more sukkahs you will see going up. You know, if you're in Brooklyn, you'll see stores like Sukkah Depot, you know, because they have all the supplies because with the Orthodox, we're all building sukkahs. Um, and the, the sukkah is an interesting uh, structure, and Sukkot's an interesting holiday. The idea behind it is to dwell in tabernacles um, as a way to give thanks to God and to remember that God delivered us out of Egypt and that God was with us in that deliverance in the wilderness. And so those tabernacles kind of create sort of a wilderness experience feeling, you know, being outside. And it's a time to give thanks and to rejoice in what God has done. And uh, just a note on the 10-day period, which I know Pastor already uh, mentioned, but just to highlight that, uh, the period, the 10 days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, are called the 10 Days of Awe, uh, which I had no clue about, by the way, when I was growing up. I just knew Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, we don't get to eat. And then we can eat again, thank God, and it's over. And that was, a, uh, you know, that's what happens when you're a secular Jew, right? Um, so we go from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, and it is actually an interesting 10-day period because this is a period where you might see some Jewish people around you who may be what they would call observant Jews trying to do good deeds, trying to make amends, pay back debts. Given they're approaching the Day of Atonement, the day where they are hoping God will forgive them, and given how much the culture views good deeds as a way to earn your place in heaven. We know this is not true, but given that's the, the cultural premise, I mean, you ask anybody, how do you get to heaven if I'm good enough? Right? Not true, but because nobody's good enough. You know, Jesus took care of that. But everyone who is observant in this period is going to be trying to do good deeds to tip the scales, so to speak, in their favor as they approach Yom Kippur. So that's what's happening in that 10-day period. But we do know that this is absolutely, positively impossible. I mean, God wants us to do good, sure. Pay back a debt if you have a debt. Be nice to somebody because that's just 
common grace, we might say, you know. But this is not going to earn anyone's place with God. There is one way and only one way. And that is through what Jesus instituted. And I'm going to take a second to focus on this, and then we'll, we'll go on and look a little bit more at, we'll look at the text, and then we'll look at um, some practices. But I just have to say, friends, in Jeremiah 31, 31, beginning there, there was a promise of a new covenant. It says, I'm going to make a new covenant, God speaking in the first person through Jeremiah, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. Because on to say, not like the, the covenant I made with them when I brought them out of Egypt, because they broke that covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. And then he goes on to say, I'm going to make a new covenant where the law is going to be written on their hearts and on their minds. And he goes on to talk about it a little bit more. Now we're going to fast forward from Jeremiah, 630 years, to the Last Supper, Jesus' last Seder. And we are going to hear some very famous words that we usually, I would think, probably go through kind of quickly. Maybe you guys go through it a little slower. Um, but either way, I just want to highlight it. It's the, the words that we know uh, that are really tied to communion for us. So if we were to go to Luke right now, which we won't, but if we were to go there to chapter 22, beginning in verse 7, we would see Jesus sending off the disciples to prepare the Passover. Think about that one for a second. But uh, they're preparing the Passover. And then you go forward in the text to verse 20. And Jesus, it says he took the cup after dinner. And um, he says those famous words, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Well, every one of us knows that, right? We know that sentence and then we take communion. I'm taking that sentence apart for you for just a moment. What does he say? He says, this cup is the what? New covenant. Oh, wow. Okay, Jewish man, already pretty well demonstrated he's the Messiah and said it, sitting at a Jewish celebration with cups that already represent the blood of the lambs that got us out of Egypt, you know, and um, he's taking that cup, and he says the words, this cup is the new covenant. I think that's an appropriate place to flash back 630 years to the promise of a new covenant to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then he says, this cup is the new covenant. And here's where I think the emphasis is. In my blood. The cup already represented the blood of the lambs. And then he declares, he's going to institute the new covenant in his blood the next day he goes to the cross. Or depending on how you play that out, maybe it's a couple of days, how you work out your calendar. Point is, Shortly after Passover, he goes to the cross. Now, you know what the disciples probably looked like at that table, especially the guys at the far end? They were probably like this. What was that? I don't know. But we've been with him three years. We're not going anywhere now. Right? I mean, they had no clue. 
They could not picture his death. They did not have the sight line that we have. But this, friends, I have to emphasize this, and I may end up emphasizing it again somewhere in the course of the message, but this is the only way for any Jew to come to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is it. This is it. There are no loopholes. There are no ways out. There are no special provisions because they were the chosen people. And in a way, they are still. They are who they are. They're Israel. But God has a a, a chosen of Jews and Gentiles alike who will follow him in a new covenant. And it does not matter what they practice or what they try to do to earn God's favor. They can not. But to be obedient to the fact that the Messiah has already come. And they must yield to him. I can't stress it enough because we are in the fishbowl with Jewish people. They're all around us. Everywhere we go, there's Jewish people. There's nowhere on Long Island that I would go that people would say, nope, I'm... Never, never met a Jewish person. You know, they wouldn't talk like that anyway. But they wouldn't, I mean, I go all over the country with people that would say, this is the first time I've met a Jewish person. We are immersed. And there are many in our lives who we care about and we love. And we do not want to think that it's this strict a path. But friends, that's the love of God. That's his love, his mercy to make one way so clear, right? One clear path. That's love. That's mercy. Not, oh, whatever makes you feel good, do that. Whatever spiritual journey leads you wherever you want to go, that's what you should do. That's the kiss of death and from the enemy himself. But the narrow path, that lays out clearly how to get to the God who has our life in his hands. That's love. Instructions from someone who has authority over us to how we can please them, that's love. We just have to follow it. My people, sadly, many are not. Many are coming to faith. Many are coming to faith, but many have not. So, Let's take a look at Rosh Hashanah. Let's break it out, okay? I'm going to read uh, Leviticus 23, 23 to 26. Beginning in 23, 23, again the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest. A reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. And then it goes on. Actually, we'll stop at 25, because uh, then it goes on to uh, Yom Kippur. So that lays out Rosh Hashanah. Wow, that's kind of short and sweet, isn't it? So let's just break that out real quick. Um, Moses was given this instruction uh, to to give to Israel, right? So they would know what to do. And the text says that in the seventh month, on the first 
day of the month, the people were to do what? Rest. Okay, so that's step number one, rest. And um, that there was also a, a reminder, right? And how were they to be reminded? Um, actually, by the blowing of trumpets. But I don't think that tells us that here, right? Oh, did I read that and I just missed it? Eleventh month, the seventh month. Oh, good. What verse was that? I just read it. Okay, good. Welcome to my brain. So, uh, <laughs> speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest reminder by blowing of trumpets. Thank you. Um, for the those who have just exegeted the text on my behalf. Thank you very much. And a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. Okay, so it does say it right there in 24. I knew it said it. I just didn't know where. Um, Excellent. And uh, blowing of trumpets, that will get your attention, yeah? That should do it. Pretty good. Um, and the text tells us a holy convocation. So uh, what's a convocation, anyway? What is that? Uh, the definition that I have for convocation is a large formal assembly of people, or the action of calling people together for a large formal assembly. So God was saying, this is going to be a formal gathering, right? We're going to get everybody's attention by the blowing of trumpets. We're going to have a formal gathering. And also, uh, what kind of formal gathering? A holy convocation, right? So holy convocation. And what about uh, the word holy? Well, in my understanding, that word means set apart for the service of God. Yeah, holy is to be set apart. So this is a calling together of the assembly to be set apart for something special, a special holy gathering. And the rest of the instruction is to do no laborious regular work. Uh, they're to present a burnt offering, a, a special offering, and then it's on to Yom Kippur. That's it. Get our attention, no regular work. And there's a special offering, which uh, is explained, actually, in Numbers 29, 1-6. We're going to take a look at that. So let's go quickly to Numbers uh, 29. And I will read that for us. Numbers 29, 1-6. Now in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall also have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It will be to you a day for blowing trumpets. And you shall offer a burnt offering as soothing aroma to the Lord. One bull, one ram, and seven male lambs, one year old without defect. Also their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil. Three-tenths of an ephah for, for the bull, two-tenths for the ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. An offering, one Sorry, and offer one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you. Besides the burnt offering of the new moon and its grain offerings, offering, and the continual burnt offering and its grain offering, and their libation according to their ordinance for a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. So in there is an offering for atonement for, for sin. But it is, it's a special offering, right? And there are the details, the rams and the, the animals that are required. It's all there in Numbers 29, 1 through 6. So that 
the people would know exactly what to do. So, that's the opening of the three-holiday group. Kind of simple, right? Not much. You rest, a reminder, by blowing of trumpets, you make the offering. But, you know, it was a full stop. It was time for a full stop. Completely to stop what they were doing. People can get distracted, right? I mean, you can get distracted any minute and forget about God. Think about a whole year. So once a year, God would have the Israelites take a full stop to turn their attention back to him. 